you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at liveonfourlegspod. track you're listening to is called where's your commitment by the suspect down if you like what you're listening to make sure you like and subscribe to them on spotify or any music platform hey uh i was just thinking i was just thinking you know if you're surfing you know, even you could be a you could be a really good surfer, but the, if the waves are shit, it's 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 hard to be a good surfer if the waves are shit. Even if you're a great surfer already. So the thing is, it, these are like some of the best waves we've ridden all tour. This energy that we serious. So what I'm saying is that even a tiny little shit band like us can sound pretty good with you guys here. <laughs> and away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast this episode has been in the waiting for a very very long time it just so happens that maybe two years ago where we planned it decided okay got other stuff down the pike we wanted to get to some other patreon request or whatever it was and then last year we were thinking about it and had other stuff to get to And now, since this is the 10-year anniversary, if you're listening to this on the 25th, exactly on the dot, 10-year anniversary of this show, you can't find a more perfect spot to put this in. This show that we're covering today is Hartford from the 2013 Lightning Bolt Tour, kind of doing two weeks in a row here of celebration of the 10-year anniversary. 
So anybody that knows me, and I guess I'll kind of use this as a monologue for the intro here is what you're about to hear and why this show is super, super important to me. For those that don't know, I'm a transplant of Connecticut. I grew up on Long Island, and then when I got my first big boy job, I moved over to Bristol, Connecticut, lived in a couple places over in Hartford County, West Hartford, Newington, and then five years ago, moved to Stratford. Now, in the next coming month, I will no longer be a Connecticut resident. I'm moving back to New York and upstate. But it still holds a special place for me because I never thought moving to Connecticut was something that I wanted to do. Going back to that 2010 show, another show that I was at, it kind of gave me a sense of like, okay, if Pearl Jam sees the place that I live as being important enough to do something special, then maybe I should take better care of it. Maybe I should consider it to be special too. So we get to three years later. And I have been living there. I had no plans to move at any point soon. And honestly, it's coming off of that 2010 show that I'm like, that was a great show. What's the follow-up going to be? And I think because I liked that show so much, I had a good expectation of what was going to be, but I did not ever see this coming. One of my main things about Hartford shows that I've brought up, and it's been a while because we haven't done a Hartford show in a while, but I got to bring it up every time we mention it, is the Hartford crowd is the perfect melting pot of Pearl Jam fans. You got fans coming in from Boston. That's only an hour or two from Boston. They can come down. Those are big-time fans, and those are fans that are going to get into the songs and celebrate. Then you got over a little bit west, New York City. You got all of those fans that are going to migrate over to Hartford. They went to the Brooklyn shows the week before, and they're hyped up. They got another show in Hartford. That's easy for them to get to, again, like two and a half hours or so. Not bad at all. But also, if you really want to get more travelers, you kind of have the Philadelphia people that might be coming in, too. Maybe the D.C. people want to come in. That's not that terrible of a ride. Upstate New York, the other parts of New England, sure, can see it happening. And that all melting pot and those hardcore fans that are there coming in from all different parts of the East Coast that are very passionate on their fandoms, not just Pearl Jam, but like with sports fandom, with just about anything that becomes an obsession. These places are known for being fanatic. And this show exemplifies that. What we're going to talk about is a crowd that was on fire the whole entire night. Maybe the best crowd I've ever sat in, in any show. I've been to a lot of Madison Square Garden shows that were very, very good crowds. But this one always stuck in my memory as something that I'll never forget. And maybe it's because, yeah, it is the hometown show kind of thing. And you don't really expect that from the hometown show. And maybe that's just something that connects me to the whole thing. And you know your memories. This was my 13th show. When it would come down the time later, I'd be at a lot more shows than this. You sort of get to the point where it's like, and every in and out every night, you don't remember every single show with everything that happened. You just don't. There's too much going on in the head of the memories. That's why we exist. So we can remind you of those things that happen. 
But this show, as I will talk about about a million times in this episode, is incredibly special to me, and I'm so glad that we're finally touching up on it. Obviously, Randy Sobel over here, but somebody that you haven't heard from yet, and no offense to John, but this is going to be me telling a lot of stories and talking a lot on this episode, but John will get his time. We have a couple booked for his shows in the new year, so we'll get some good John episodes coming up in February, January, whenever that is, but John Farrar is over there, if you might not hear from him a lot. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little. yeah, this is one that you've talked about a lot, and if you had asked me a few weeks ago before I started on the schedule, I'd have been like, oh, we covered that one. Because you've talked about it so much. So it was good to get into the show and figure out what makes the show so special. Because like you said, the crowd is going to be the story. And I think something to do maybe with tickets, like when they announce the show, like maybe a lot of fans think that they're not going to get tickets for Brooklyn or Boston or Philly. And they go, oh, but I can do Hartford. Like that, that'll be an easier one. Yeah, there's something about this crowd. You can tell right away that it affected the band early on. And it's going to be the story. Where were you in this crowd? I was in two different places. I started off in like the 200 section over on Mike's side, like, you know, nothing special at all, but it really didn't matter. And then, as I'll kind of tell, I moved down back of the stage, got a better view of everything, and I actually got some pictures that I went through. I didn't know I took pictures of the show because I never looked at them. They were a little bit blurry, so I never paid much mind to them. But when they went around the stage for Elderly Woman, I was able to see some stuff, take some pictures, and it's good to have that evidence that you were there and kind of remember, okay, this was where I was sitting. This was what my view of this show was, because there have been shows where I haven't done that a whole lot. So I'm glad that I had the wherewithal to do that. But John, I got to bring this up. At the end of the last episode, when I brought up that we were doing this, you kind of groaned a little bit. So <laughs> what was the groan for that we're going to be talking about Van Halen? We're going to be talking about my anguish with got some or what? I want to get inside your head with this one. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's all tongue in cheek. People know your relationship with Hartford. And I knew this was going to be one where I wasn't going to have much to say. But yeah, the Van Halen thing, we're going to talk about that plays into it for sure. All right. I think here I know I prefaced a little bit of the story, but I'm going to really kick this off here. 2013 was really my first year that I felt like I could be a traveler for this band. I went to Wrigley, and that kind of all happened within a month's time. I didn't know that I was going to the show until like maybe early June at the earliest. And I only had three tickets. It was really hard to get to the tickets to Brooklyn. It was kind of hard to get to the tickets to this show. But also, I kind of on a whim, I was so pumped for this tour, especially after going to Wrigley, that two days before the show, I decide, okay, let's see where the band is. It's a Saturday. I can make a day trip and then drive back the next day. What are they doing? Where are they going to be? And it just so happened that they were doing the second night of the tour in Buffalo. And I picked up everything and I went. And that's the first and maybe the only real sporadic Pearl Jam experience that I've ever had. And we told it on the podcast a long, long time ago. So that had impacted me. I love the Brooklyn show. That impacted me a whole lot. So now we're getting into the last show of this little four-show stint. 
2010, I did three. So I'm kind of inching my way up. And this would be the most for any year outside of last year, as a matter of fact. So, you know, this is me starting to really get into the fanatical mindset of, like, I want more and more and more and more of this band. And when you get to Hartford, and really at this day and age, you don't spend a lot of nights sleeping in your own bed after shows. And I might be able to count them on one hand how many times I spent in the hotel. But honestly, the garden shows I was home for as well, or at my parents' house or something like that. So I might account for it. But it was an opportunity for me, and I never really took this opportunity to do this again unless it was my brother or my girlfriend, now my wife. And I took the opportunity to find people that I was working with, like fringe Pearl Jam fans, casual, but were concert goers. The two guys that came with me were both very fanatical Dave Matthews fans, which is a completely different experience. My friend Dan and my friend Mike. And I wanted to, because they talked about Dave so much, I wanted to give them... The experience is like, okay, well, that's your experience. Why don't you come and see my experience? I, I probably promised both of them that I would go to a Dave show. I did not capitalize off of that, but I'm going to be living closer to SPAC, so I guess there's another opportunity there in the future. But also, little things for people that don't know, I don't bring it up too, too often, but I worked at ESPN during this time period. I worked there for about eight, nine years or so. been living in Connecticut almost 15 now. And what was happening there, I was about to get, it's not a promotion per se, but I was about to move from a daily show to a weekly show, which meant that my responsibilities were going to get better. It was Monday Night Football, a lot more eyeballs on it than a daily NFL show at four o'clock in the afternoon. So... It was harder work, it was more preparation, and I just kind of remember feeling real good about myself at that time that these things that I had been working for and wanted were happening. So we have that on top of like about to go to a Pearl Jam show, and I'm I'm feeling pretty good about myself in a in a time period where I don't think I had that all that much. So I have a good positive memory of that because of the time period. And I, I mentioned ESPN because there was obviously the Steve Gleason feature that came out at the time, and I was kind of in on it and kind of knew what was going on while it was going on, and I had watched it before it made air. I remember going to the boards and telling people, you have to make sure you tune in and see this because this is incredible. It's going to make you cry. It's going to make you get choked up. And I remember talking because I was friends with the guy that produced it and his name was Mike and I knew the guy that edited his name was Dale. I didn't talk to him as much, but I, I knew him enough where I can have a conversation. And like they, not into Pearl Jam at all, but kind of got to get what it was all about after being in the room with both Ed and Mike and Steve Gleason and really got to feel what the power was. So I had some good conversations. They'll come back up later in the story. But having my work connect to Pearl Jam in some shape or fashion was really, really exciting for me. And actually, at that day, my supervisor kept saying to me, like about a week beforehand, it's like, you know, we're working on trying to get Eddie to come in to the studio and maybe like get him on a morning show or something like that. I'm like, all right, well, 
you're running the morning shows, so you let me know right away if, if Ed is coming. And he's like, oh, you'll be the first person I tell. Turned out he did not show up. They couldn't do it. And I, I think, as we'll find out in the show, there's a reason for that, because he was doing something much more important on this day. But I, I just kind of like all the butterflies, like, okay, is it going to happen? Do I dare give him a song request? Like, how, how is this all going to work? But didn't happen. We got to see celebrities and people like that all the time at ESPN. And after a while, it just kind of, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, you just let people be people. But I wasn't going to let Ed be people. I was going to go and make him my friend. So, (laughs) you know, again, that's a whole if and but. But, you know, it was was part of the time and part of what was going on in my mind and how I was feeling. So... Yeah, there was one other ticket. I had bought four, and there was one other ticket, and I was kind of getting desperate to sell because I didn't know I either Mike or Dan. I think it was Mike kind of gave me the word at the last minute that he was going. So I had this one extra ticket, went on the boards, and was just like, please, first come, first serve. I went back, and I looked at my emails because I couldn't remember his name. His name's Curtis, and I believe he was from New Hampshire. And from reading the email, he said, look, if you got a ticket or not, I'm going to be there. And I'm like, all right, if you're going to be there, then I got a ticket for you. So we worked it all out. And I don't remember a lot of our conversations, but I remember him being very, very thankful that we were able to get him into the show. And he he had a good experience, of course, him being obviously more on the plane of being part of this community rather than Dan and Mike were. So, oh, wow. That's kind of the tee up that was going through my mind for this. It's one of those things where I had work that day, so I wasn't going to the show and waiting merch lines or anything like that. And it wasn't a well-sought-after poster or anything, so I was able to go inside get a poster. And the poster, people don't like this poster very much. I bought it because you just buy posters for shows you go to. I don't do it every time now, but back then I did. Especially for Hartford, you got to have everything from your home stadium. And I believe I couldn't get a poster tube for this. So I was just like, I had it rolled up. I might have spilled beer on it or something like that. Just an awful experience just lugging the poster around. And it's not one that I've hung up very often. So I just kind of threw that out there. And we went, we hung out at a bar and got a little food beforehand and probably talked to a couple fans, probably people that I got to meet later on in this little Pearl Jam journey thing. And yeah, it was just got to rock on, go to the show. Kind of knew the ropes, kind of knew what was going on. So that takes us into the actual show that there's really not a lot of tee up to get to the show. They were on the lightning bolt tour and they were rocking during this. They already had pretty much put out their statement here of like, this is what this tour is going to be. You were going to get some rare songs here and there. You were going to get the opener with the one, two, three slow burn. And then you were going to get the encore with kind of the build back in the same fashion. And pretty much every night you can expect 30 plus songs in three hours. So knowing that with the three shows that I had been to, I was just like, okay, I'm just ready for more. I'm ready for more, and I got a lot that's on my list that I need to see, so bring it to me. 
And this was an evening with Pearl Jam, too, like no opener, so they can really just stretch it out and do whatever they wanted. I mean, this is kind of the era that people look back on now and be like, oh, that was a little bit of a golden age. We didn't know how good we had it with them doing 35 songs every night, basically. A lot of people pine for that era now, but I don't think it's coming back here. I think that this era is gone and then that band's history. Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely kind of a thing of the past, but I'm glad that I was able to take advantage of it when it did. And I think a lot of other people, I know a lot of people that traveled that Lightning Bolt tour, especially on the East Coast. So, yeah, important to get out to those shows, especially for a lot of those real classic shows. And I I put this one in that category. Yeah, I, I traveled out of state for the first time to see them five days later. There you go. All right, let's dig in here. We're going to start the show the same way we started almost every show in 2013 with Pendulum. But obviously, we got two other songs that were following up on that in the long road and also sometimes. So I think for my fourth show this run, this night, I was probably starting to feel like, okay, Pendulum's the opener and like comfortable with the song. You know, the first time that I heard it, I probably heard it you know, less than half a dozen times before hearing it live because it wasn't really one that stood out among stuff like lightning bolt and some of the more electric stuff that I liked on side a of the record. So it kind of caught me by surprise when I heard them open up for the first time, but now I'm more comfortable with it. I get the aspect behind it. I kind of like that. Mike was using the bow during it. Cool little things. And at this time, and we heard this on the past tour a few times, one time opening up, you know, now it's kind of one of those things where everybody knows it so well that it becomes a moment and the crowd is able to kind of anticipate things and they all sing the easy left long ago and have fun with it. And back then, since it was a new song and they wanted to showcase it, but a lot of people, I guess, weren't quite there with the song yet it was able to continue that more ominous tone like there's not really a big drive in it that feels like they're gonna like put you on a ride with the song but it was kind of the tone setter for these shows it's like all right here's kind of a warm-up and then you're gonna get what feels like classic Pearl Jam right after that I really like this version of Pendulum I'm on a kind of upswing with the song lately this version is really moody and dark and sinister is the word we use sometimes. It branches into that territory a little bit, I think. But the thing that stuck out to me the most on these first three is just how focused the band is. Like a lot of times they come out with Pendulum, it's loose, they're playing around and it might not be the perfect version, but they came out on this night locked in completely. I don't know if just being on the road for two weeks or however long they had been out, but I don't remember an an opening three from 2013 that's this intense and this focused and like obviously Long Road is going to be the highlight but Pendulum I think as well starts off this show in a great fashion. Ed you can tell is not messing around, he's locked in from the very beginning. I, I really like this version. Yeah I don't disagree with you on that and I think that the undertone of some of the themes of this show very very heavy stuff that they'll talk about in the encore that they get into but i think that long road traces and is kind of the moment where you can tell like something in this show is going to be on their minds and is going to be spoken about and you can tell in long road just ed's face 
just watching his face the whole entire time. Anytime that he got to close his eyes and really kind of feel the passion that was inside him, really kind of feel the moment for what he was going for with the song, like, yeah, they were dead on with that. time ever hearing Long Road and if stats aren't considered then it's also my last because I have a whole thing where it was the Fenway show and I wasn't in my seat and walking around and I totally missed Long Road. I wasn't even outside when Long Road was playing so that doesn't really count for me. You know these checklists that I put together and I make public and then Everybody shares their own checklist of what they haven't seen and what they want to see again. I wasn't doing that at the time, but I was definitely thinking about that. I think Long Road was either number one or number two on that list. So getting it at the last show was special for me. If I didn't get it at the show and I would have missed it at Fenway, then you wouldn't have heard the end of it. I would still be screaming about it right now. So yeah, just a really special moment. It's up there for me. Obviously, in my tree is the one that I'd love to see the most. But yeah, I've never seen Long Road. It's, it's right there in that category as well. You can tell this is a great Boom show as well. Boom has a lot of moments in the show. And Long Road is the first one. You can tell like, I love what he's doing on that organ in the intro with Ed. And you can tell it gets to the very end almost before the real quiet part, before it kind of dies down a little bit. Ed starts to go for it a little bit. And you're like, oh, is he going to keep that going? Is he going to take it to another level and keep it up but he just gets to the breaking point and then drops it down and gets to the quiet part but yeah just the intensity in this version is something magical one of the best aspects of the song is kind of like when it comes off as a eulogy and i kind of felt that from this looking back i didn't know it at the time but looking back and kind of understanding what the show was about i think ed is really singing to the parents the families anybody that was affected by the Newtown tragedy. And we'll get into that much later when it's time to talk. But this is an early indication that that is on his mind. Sometimes also interesting to finish out this this bit because it feels like they're kind of continuing the mood that Long Road had. I thought this was kind of a moody sometimes to me. And just getting impassioned again and Ed singing the line, you're welcome here, dear God. Like, there's something going on that I think is attributed to what 
is in his head for longer. And maybe it was just the connection and he was just in that mindset still, but sometimes has the tendency to be a really kind of a fun song live. And he was locked in on it and he was pretty intensified. Yeah, absolutely. It builds on the momentum that Longer had, and it's another one where Ed lets loose and like just gets to that point of intensity and screaming and then drops it down. You can tell he's like, all right, there's going to be a time for that. Just going to hint at that and then pull it back right now. So we'll hear from Javier in a little while, and I asked him about this one because Stone has this really interesting note bend near the end of the song. It's kind of like a little twangy sound a little bit. says that Stone finds whatever Mike is doing in a different side of the neck. It's an octave note. Mike does strings five and three, and Stone does strings three and one. They play the same note, but the harmony is different since it's played in a different part of the fretboard. That's like master level synchronicity of guitar playing. If you can, Seriously. if you're that locked in with someone that like, I'm going to see what strings you're playing and then complement that with this one in an octave and then a different one. Like that's the kind of things that you don't even notice when you're listening. It's just, you'd think, oh, it's just the guitars, but so much work and so much time, so much practice goes into that, that it just seems effortless, but that's expert level. That's like a master class in, in guitar playing. Good enough for at least 124th on the best all-time guitar list. So, there you have that. Corduroy, Lightning Bolt, Minor Matters. Let's kick off this thing. Corduroy was awesome, and I think every time I heard Corduroy on this tour, just injected to my veins, feed me it. And although that Wrigley show and the London, Ontario show as well had the whole extended version involved it wasn't really until 2016 where they were doing it consistently every night going back and listening to this i was kind of expecting that but it's really straightforward and i kind of do remember that the bridge leading way to the solo was just on fire and that's really the moment where the crowd like you can feel something rumbling in there that they were about to go off. Everybody was clapping, everyone was bouncing around and yeah, get locked in and just ride that wave of momentum for the end of that song. Corduroy following up on those three was the best option that they had and it really kind of lit a fire under this crowd that never stopped during the show. Yeah, I mean, look, after Pendulum, the new song, you're getting song from 95, song from 96, song from 94, and that's going to get people going. But there's a moment in Corduroy, I think it's during that bridge, where they all jump at the same time. And I looked for a picture of it, just for a second, I didn't go super deep, but I couldn't find a picture of it. But that would be really cool to see, because I think it's Mike, Jeff, and Ed at least all sync up their leap together in Corduroy, and it, it looks really cool. And it was a four-jumper version of Corduroy, I believe, where they did the dance. Dan, Dan, Dan. Like, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Like, the old rock and roll lure you in thing from old school concerts, but that, like, I love that stuff. So, yeah, just incredible. Lightning Bolt, Mind Your Matters. I was attaching to Lightning Bolt at the time, hearing it every single night. This was a jam. 
and really kind of comes down to Mike and his solo on this. Like when he is able to get kind of like hypnotic, it feels like it's effortless with this solo sometimes that he's just on top of it. And it's like so clean. So it's kind of melodious and harmonic in a way. I don't remember what I was going through during the song, but I would assume that I'd be hypnotized by what Mike was doing. It was that good. Very poppy and upbeat version, but the thing that I noticed was during Mind Your Manners, Ed's already noticing the crowd, holding the mic stand out for everyone to scream along. You can already tell that, like, something's going on in this crowd tonight. And that's going to lead way to Last Exit. Most of you maybe know that I did the Serious Wish list a couple years back, and my first song that I chose was this version of Last Exit, because I kind of wanted to tell the story within about my life living in Hartford and why the Hartford shows meant so much to me. And it's this moment. And look, you know, the GA was bouncing during this. I remember the whole place was bouncing. You could feel something. It's one of those old hockey barns and you can feel that something was happening. You could feel something bubbling up. It was a good crowd venue. And also two Vitalogy in the first seven, which would end up being three Vitalogy in the first eight with the next song. This crowd was just electric. And then, you know, the fuel was pumping and it just something happened in between that where the crowd was just so stunned and I guess so fired up from the first seven songs, which it was probably like 20 to 25 minutes that it all took, but it felt like five it felt like it took no time at all to get through all that, especially the fast four that they just played. But Ed takes the mic. He says, this is, I mean, one of maybe my favorite moment that I've ever seen in a concert. Hey, uh, good evening. That's quite a, quite a reception. Uh, this is. Uh during this and just kind of shaking his head like hard to put into words what's happening because this crowd a Hartford crowd which again the melting pot of all these big cities but when you think of Hartford you might not be thinking that initially kind of thinking okay this is a Connecticut in between a couple of big cities but you're always kind of thinking that okay it's a hometown crowd wherever you go 
unless it's something real big like a BJ20 kind of bit. I don't know if he wasn't expecting any of that, but like very genuine kind of steps back from the mic and is like, okay, we're going to have to work real hard to deserve what you just gave us. And it's that moment thinking about it gives me goosebumps all the time. I still feel that to this day of being in that crowd and understanding and just being amazed by it too, because I never experienced something as powerful as this, even MSG 2010, there were some really amazing crowd moments, and I don't think it matched up to this. It was a sight to behold. Now we're getting into, as I mentioned, Immortality, third Vitalogy of the Night, that's going to be into Evenflow right here. Just an interesting note, there were four songs that I really felt followed me around on this tour. And Immortality was one of them. And it was kind of like some of them were stock up. Most of them were stock up, but one was stock down. We'll get to that one a little bit later. But there were four specifically that I think I had saw at all three locations, from Buffalo to Brooklyn to Hartford. And maybe one of them or two of them I saw in Wrigley as well. Immortality on this tour, being the third time that I've seen it, is quickly rising into the top because I, I had never seen it before the Buffalo show. It's quickly rising into the top of my favorite songs of all time. And it's that intro to get into it, especially when you don't have experience of hearing it live. You don't really know what's going to happen. And then they just burst into the beginning of it. And you're like, holy cow, that's incredible. I just was able to kind of take it all in and hear Mike just hold out that note and hold his head up to the sky with his eyes closed and then once his number's called upon he just tears it apart and just feed into that energy that's the end of the song oh man after this tour immortality was solidified in my top five favorite songs easily yeah, this is the classic version of Immortality. The jam, too, at the end is just incredible with Cameron and Jeff just locked in together. I will give them credit. The original set list did have Johnny Guitar next after Immortality, and I will give them credit <laughs> for cutting Johnny Guitar and not trying to follow Immortality with that. So weird. Even to this day, it's so fucking weird that that was on the set list. And then it's like a perfect segue into Evenflow, too. This even flow is so fast. It is lightning speed. And I think this is one that when people talk about how even flow kind of lost its way, they talk about these were just so fast. Ed just can't keep up with the vocals. He's just mumbling through it. Stone is trying to keep it going, but it's, God, they go back. And like They're just playing at breakneck speed. And like Cameron actually slows it down when he gets to the solo and then picks it back up the end and they kick back into it. The ending is great, but just so fast and it almost takes me out of it a little bit ed lets the crowd sing the ending and lets out a big never vote republican at the end and yeah that place is bouncing yet again that's a trademark song for this night all right this is a good little bit from ed right here i was just thinking if you're surfing you can be a really good surfer but it's hard to be a good surfer when the waves are shit these are like some of the best waves we've written all tour the best energy. And yet again, if the crowd's going to hear that, they're going to be like, damn fucking right. <laughs> damn fucking right, we're pretty good waves. Ed just, again, takes it all in. Yep, you guys are right. You are deserving of that. 
So what I'm saying is even a tiny little shit band like us could sound good with you guys here. We will now continue with one called Sirens. It was at that point of Evenflow, I believe, that I had moved seats. So another friend that I had worked with at the time was definitely more passionate about Pearl Jam at the time than I was. But he was kind of the first person that introduced me to some old school stuff. And he had some of those like old school Italian bootlegs from 1993. And that was the first time that I ever heard the shoes for my friends. He gave me a CD with that on it. And I think the Atlanta rats was definitely on that. So I was getting that like full experience of like, this is what the Dave Bay era was. Cause I hadn't really listened to that much at the time. So he was kind of guiding me along and giving me some good stuff to listen to. And he's going to come back in, in just a second. His name is AJ. I haven't talked to him in a very long time, but I'm sure he would just love this podcast. So, yeah, we were behind the stage. It was pretty close to where the band was, maybe against the wall. I can't remember, but I, I, I feel like I felt more of that excitement and energy sitting there than I did up in the 200s. You were still able to feel it, and you could see the whole entire crowd bounce up and down from that perspective, but you felt it from that position that you were in behind the stage. So Sirens is going to go into Alone, and this is not the first time that we kind of talk about Sirens and question why the hell has it been discontinued, because they were on a roll with it. I mean, obviously it's one that they're very high on. As I mentioned, Steve Gleason feature, this song was heavily featured. And although they've never said it, I've always believed that this song was kind of written about his situation. And think about this. He said on that interview that they expected him to have five years to live. And it's 10 years later. And he's still here. So it's pretty incredible. So... I guess it's just sort of stuck in this era, but this could have been a really good moment at either this year or last year if they wanted it to be. And it could have sounded like this, and at the time they weren't doing the extension on it, so that would kind of evolve and grow and get better even, but it's kind of stuck in the time capsule, I suppose. It's surprising because it felt like it was resonating with the crowd and it had the moment, you know, you get to see Mike switch the guitars and the double neck guitar and then Ed was doing a little reprise at the end and it felt like it was turning into something pretty cool and then after 2018 they've just dropped it but if it comes back I think it would be well received like I think it would kind of be a bigger thing than it ever was if it came back I think people really liked the song, It was there was a video it was like a single yeah, it's really surprising that they just dropped it. I wonder, because it doesn't feel like one that's too hard for Ed to sing, like out of his range, but who knows? Yeah, and they've messed around with the tuning on this a little bit. This is one of the songs that they've actually tried up-tuning, and it sounds weird when they up-tune it, but there's no reason why they can't do it, unless Ed doesn't want to get the guitar switch again, that whole catastrophe that happened this year. But... I have a feeling at some point it will come back and people will start to recognize it and be like, yeah, that deserves to be around. Well, I talked about my friend AJ and right from the minute they get into the next song that we just both eyes widened total holy shit moment and probably shook me or something like that like is this actually happening 
we were around a, a lot of people that were more on the casual side that I don't really think they knew heads or tails of what was happening. But it's like us two in this group of maybe like six or eight that are just freaking out over this. And I don't think Alone was on my radar for being a song that I would have ever heard, but I happened to hear it at this show and then the very next show that I went to where I was like three people away from you, so you got to hear yep. it too. And this 2014, yep. Mm-hmm. But I was just kind of in shock the whole entire time, to be honest with you. Yeah, and this is interesting too because there's only one 10 song in the main set, which you almost never see, but Alone is another one that obviously goes back to 1990, 1991. It's got that feel to it of like one of those really early songs, but this version's great. Like, Alone can be hit or miss, but uh, you know, I love Ed doing all the whole full acapella outro in this with all the lights off. It's super yes. cool. Oh, my favorite thing. Also, another thing I really liked in this, where we will get our first instance with Javier actually talking to you guys, is I just love the sound of Jeff's fretless bass on this. It made the song pop. And since we don't talk about Jeff a whole lot, because Javier obviously is a guitar guru, but he knows a little bass. He's an expert in all of it. So let's get a little Jeff Ament talk going on in the gear garage. Hey, Rand. Hey, John. Hey, everyone on the podcast. So we're covering Heart for 2013. And guys, if you haven't done this yet, please take a chance. Spotify, Apple Music, whatever platform you use, go listen to the new remastered Atmos version of Lightning Bolt because it sounds great. There's a lot of little things that you can hear that are different. So if you have time, just go listen to that. All right, let's talk about Alone. I know the main point is always the stone, Mike, whatever they're doing, their guitars, right? But we just can't ignore Jeff in this one. A lot of people have wondered what kind of bass is this? This is a fretless bass. So Jeff has been well known to play fretless basses, 12 string basses, which is kind of weird, but he kind of took that idea from Cheap Trick. But the fretless bass approach, it was more like based on Led Zeppelin's kind of sound. And especially because there's a few interviews from the past that he was saying the Stone had this very Led Zeppelin approach to write. So he wanted to include that over that influence that it was going to help the sound. Songs like Even Flow, or in this case, Alone. Historically, Jeff has been using a wall MK2 fretless bass. That's kind of like the brown one that we kind of known over time. And then he progressed over the Michael Lull version that he has multiple of those. There is a brown one, there's a white one, and there's a silver one as well. Same pickups, they're a little bit more passive pickups, so it's not going to have any sort of batteries that are not active or anything like that. What we can say about this tone, so when you have fretted basses, when you have those two little pieces of metal in your neck, the note is going to sound a little bit less buzzy. So it's going to be perfect, it's going to be in pitch, it's going to be, of course, if the string is in tune, but it's going to be in pitch because you're going to have those two spaces delimiting where you can press the string, and that's going to create the perfect sound. But fretless basses are a little bit different because they don't have any frets, as the name says, but it has more buzz 
in the way that you're pressing the string is going to make a different influence over the note that you're playing. So that's the reason why sometimes you hear this kind of like wobbly tones coming from Jeff and songs like even flowing alone. And that's because it's just in the way that the bass is made, you're going to be able to create that. So yeah, we wanted to kick it off with that since it's a thing that we haven't discussed yet. But yeah, any bassist players out there, just give us a shout. We would love to hear what you think about this. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thanks again, Javier. You will yep. be back in maybe like two minutes. So hang on. I packaged all these songs together. There's little bits and pieces of this, but unthought known, let the records play, save you, and do the evolution all together before getting into Better Man at the end of the set. And I think it was just, look... You start off your set with seven straight songs, and then you're going to finish your set with seven straight songs. I don't think I had ever seen that in my life outside of like 1994. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if they knew that there was going to be some heavy stuff in the encore and he was going to need to talk some. And so they're just trying to get through this, save some time. I- I think that was part of it, but also like maybe it was just kind of like if you're feeling it, if the crowd's on a ride, then just go. You don't need to say anything. So the things that kind of stand out, I think Evolution stands out to me because they're doing the whole South America chance here and Ed's prompting the crowd to do it. And having gotten this at, I think, every single show that I went to this year, this is now on my mind. Like, oh, this is the new thing we're doing for Evolution. We're not like admire me admire my home and now i get a role in the song so i'm excited about this the crowd was on top of this and fired up so i i I love the experience and this was one of my favorite songs of this whole entire tour because of that save you i just kind of remember it was a really odd intro into save you because there was a little feedback but then like mike gives a really heavy kick into the riff and i always thought like ooh, it's kind of a faster version of save you so i dig this version i go back to this a little bit even if there's a little guffaw in there kind of messing up and missing some lyrics but the thing i want to get back to javier on here is for let the records play because this is a guitar heavy song of course not something that we cover a whole lot. So I think it's good to get his take on this. And you caught something in the video that you wanted to talk about with this. So tee up Javier on it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I noticed Stone at first is not playing with a pick, just kind of like flicking his fingers on the strings, which gives a unique sound that I'm hoping Javier can dig into for us. And then, of course, Mike, we know now in 2023, using his signature model Stratocaster, and he's got that on this version as well. Originally, this song was played on Jeff's guitar, which is the black one that we have seen as Smile. If you want to know that it's in the Gibson ES330, there's multiple versions of the ES models like 335, 329, 339, 45, 555, etc. So we're not going to waste too much time on that because there are countless of those. 
So this is the era where Stone was playing a little bit more with his hand. Actually, 90% of the time he was playing with his hands and not using a pick. So the tone is a little bit more creamy and smooth because again, you're not going to have the attack of the pick. Therefore, that pluck that you're going to get over the pickup while you hit the string is not going to be present. It's going to be a little bit more soft. It's going to be a little bit more smooth. You can still include and add a lot of rhythm, but it's a very, very, very different approach and different perspective. These guys, they always talk about combining tones. So when they're playing Let the Records Play, which in the live version is played by Les Paul in a stone side and Mike is using his 1960 Strat, that combination of tones is gonna give you like a super sweet balance and it's gonna be a very kind of like rock and roll bluesy tone, but it's not gonna be absolutely overwhelming. Also in this era, Mike started to add the MXR carbon copy, which is that little slap back delay echo effect or space echo if you wanna define it that way that you can hear over songs like Mind Your Manners and in the solo of Let the Records Play. So it adds a little bit of like that space that maybe the song needs, especially because sometimes Stone's tone, when he's playing with the hands, this is so melodic and creamy, it can get a little too much. It can be a little bit overwhelming. But yeah, little details that we haven't talked to yet. And very interesting because it's a song that we don't consider very much when we talk on live settings because it has not been including in a lot of sets. So yeah, let us know what you think. A little lightning bolt for you, and he'll be back with another lightning bolt song very, very soon. Maybe not two minutes, but maybe more like five or six. We are ending the main set here with Better Man, only 16 songs, which feels the light end. Kind of connect it with Blackjack sometimes a little bit, like you know how you, you want to hit on a 16, you stay on a 17, but you want to hit on a 16, you want it even more in the main set so it's like shit 16 gives one more so we can stay you know what i mean i don't know if that analogy worked but hey you gotta try it sometimes so all of these uninterrupted songs kind of end with better man and ending the set here it was just once again i don't even know if ed really sang much of the first portion of the song he might have just said waiting and he was like nah no 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 this is a crowd song and look Give that garden crowd in 2010 all the credit. was there, too, obviously. Mentioned it a bunch of times before. They took this, and they took it to heights that I don't think anybody ever expected it to reach. But uh, I think Hartford did pretty damn good with it as well. That whole moment where they stop, and it's just a round of applause, like standing ovation from this crowd before Ed goes back into the verse. Like, that gets this song juiced up and just ready just to tear this apart.
I think it's at this point my friend Dan turns to me and he's like, this is a rock and roll show. I'm like, yeah, of course it is. He's like, pure rock and roll. This, this isn't like, you know, going to see screens and things like that. This is pure rock and roll I got here. I'm like, yeah, welcome to a Pearl Jam show. So, yeah, so much fun on this. I noticed, like you mentioned, when he stops in the crowd, it kind of overwhelms him a little bit. He throws it back on him. He goes, no, it's you. It's you. Yeah. And that's super cool. And the call and response at the end is fantastic. One of the best you're ever going to hear. Absolutely. Great way to end a killer main set. And you got so much more to go. So we're at the encore here. Time to pause briefly for station identification. This won't take long. And we'll just run over the Patreon stuff real quick. Let's thank one brand new patron, Kelsey Parks. Thank you so much for joining up, Kelsey. Very, very cool. And, you know, let's just give the rundown. There will be new things coming to Patreon at some point in the not-so-distant future. Just remember, a lot of moving out of my house means I gotta focus on the important things to focus on. doesn't mean we're ignoring anything on Patreon. It's just what we need to do and keeping it narrow focused, I suppose. But we are working on an evolution episode right now for indifference. So I expect that I would hope that would come out maybe second or third week in November, maybe first, if we really play some hurry up on it, but we'll see how that all goes about. That's something to look up the pike. And I I think for the late night series, I think we're going to get to the Conan episode Hmm. where they debuted got some. So that's next on our regimen for that. I'm going to guess that we probably take that series into 2024, which we did not want to do, but let's really try not to. Shit happens. Shit happens. So, and it's going to keep happening, but you know, that's sort of things to expect. So, just throwing the tears out at you. If you want to join up, you can spend a dollar a month. That's all you got to spend and join the bonus lag tier. And you will get all of the episodes up on Patreon right now. And of course the future episodes too. Or if you want to spend $5 a month, then you get the option to request an episode for us to cover in the future. And that is a cool little facet is taking us to so many shows that we didn't really study a whole lot on, not listen to, and kind of open our ears to something brand new. And a lot of the ones that we're going to listen to for 2024 are going to be the same way, where we're going to get you know new ears on, on new songs and new ears on new sets and everything like that. So we're really excited to get to that slate of shows for sure. And then if you want to go a little bit further, really help us out. This helps out our website and the funding for the website. Heading on to the Horizon Light tier for $10 a month, and you will get the episode request, and you will also get a profile episode, which I am sitting on the Dakota profile episode. I'll make sure it gets out next week. That's something I can do. It won't be a problem. So you will have new Patreon content. There you go. So, all right. All you got to do is go to patreon.com slash live on four legs or go to the Patreon app and search for live on four legs or live on four legs.com. That's our website. It's got the concertpedia. John's working on the 2012 entries right now. So they're done. They're going to be out soon. They're going to be out soon. There you go. We're working on 2011 now. And then, Hey, things are going to keep moving. So a lot of stuff to look for, a lot of stuff to read on the website, but also if you want to just go there and check stuff out, If you just look to the top, you can see the orange become a patron button. Just click that to get to where you need to be. And then 
donate a little. Help us out, because we love going out on tour, and we love doing the things that we can do out on tour, but we do need a little help to make it happen. So help us out, and we will just give you as much content as we can afford to throw your way. And anybody that has been on Patreon will tell you that it is worth it for the content alone. So, all right, back to the rock. Ed pulls out what he says is wine bottle number two, a 1998 Barolo. They only bring this out on Fridays. So he looks to the back where I am. There's a toast to the back. And then he said, we were in the back saying, what an incredible crowd this is. And then we kept going and we were kind of like, oh, fuck, they're still out there. We better go get them. So thanks for giving us a great place to play. And they're going to get into a little bit of a softer one from the new record called Yellow Moon. This, we're going to throw right to Javier here because he likes some of the aspects that Mike was using on his pedal board. And look, I can explain the whole thing because I have a little bit of the detail here, but he's going to go into further depth on it. So let's hear a little bit from Yellow Moon with Javier right now. save the best for the last because all of you guitar geeks i guess you're going to be excited about this one so yellow moon beautiful song extremely beautiful composition by jeff Amond. it has a very cool detail that i don't think a lot of people has considered because stone plays the acoustic part right jeff is on the upright bass so those tones are familiar to us fans but then when you started to hear what Mike is doing, you immediately will think, oh yeah, yeah, that has to be the Pog, Oregon Sounds. Those guys on the podcast have talked about that. Actually, it isn't. 2013 was a pivotal year for Mike's board. He included a lot of stuff. He was including a lot of different things to use for texture, different colors over the guitar. Colors, I mean, more atmospheres and stuff like that. Distortions, overdrives, different like booster spares, pedals and stuff like that. There was one very unique thing that it was only used for 2013. Then it was removed. So for the first leg of 2013, or exactly for what 2013 was, there was like a cabinet on Mike's side, right over his pedal board, to the right side. This was a Ludwig Phase II guitar synthesizer from 1970. It's a very specific vintage effect that is going to create a very prolonged note. So it's going to create sustain, making the guitar sound like a B3 organ. I bet that it was a hassle to move it around, probably voltage, probably like milliamp restrictions, whenever they were going. I know for a fact that a few times it failed on stage. So they had to improvise whenever they were playing Yellow Moon. 
Later on, this pedal was completely eliminated from the rack and the POG was kind of like dialed in for the setting whenever the Yellow Moon was going to be showing up at the set. But yeah, it's a very unique thing. I've never seen it again, only 2013 in only 2013. And it's kind of funny that they took this approach. I think they wanted to represent the exact sound and the tone that they used for the record for Yellow Moon. So they thought that it was necessary to carry this big ass thing on tour and put it right on the pedal board. But I don't know if you guys knew that. I had to do a lot of research for this one and I found pretty interesting information about this pedal. So cool stuff and kind of like very unique for that time because we never saw it again. And it's kind of surprising to see how these guys, they want to be as faithful or they're in love with the sound and they will do whatever it takes just to take it on the road so they can show it to the fans. All right. That was great stuff as always. While Johnny Guitar was on the list, Comeback was not originally on the set list, but Ed's going to dedicate it to a beautiful person named Aviel. This encore is just going to be super, super emotional from this point on. You get the camera angles on Ed's face and Mike's face, and you can really tell there's some anguish that they're going through. There's some pain that they're working through. I kind of always say it with this song, like you don't have to play it with that kind of purpose in mind, but when you do, you can feel what they're feeling on the stage in the crowd and kind of know this has a purpose to it. And something happened that is meaningful to the band enough where they're putting it out there and they're wearing their emotions on their sleeve. Yeah, I always go back to the 2010 Berlin version as the kind of definitive performance of Comeback. I think that still is the best one, but this one is right there as well. Like, just a magical performance. Ed playing guitar gives it a little bit of extra behind it, and they were just channeling something really special on stage. I thought Mike, too, taking this to another level at the end, and it sounded like a little bit of the tone was almost like kind of weepy in a way you know while my guitar gently weeps i I guess if you want to throw that analogy out there or whatever but like it's not gently weeping it is sobbing in this and the emotional pain that mike can bring out of his guitar at any moment on songs like black and come back and those are the best examples of that yeah you you feel that you kind of understand that all right something's happening here The real possibility that I may meet you in my dreams I go to say If I don't fall apart Will my memories stay clear So you had to go So Ed here, we're getting into future days right here So he says, I didn't want to tell everybody what the song was really about But I figured I will tell you guys Everyone should be free to interpret it however they want, but really, it's kind of about being a parent. (laughs) Then somebody has the balls to say, worldwide suicide, and that gives a nice little chuckle out of Ed. Somebody's got a newborn at home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we've been there before. Oh, yeah. And he said, that's pretty fucking funny. I'll drink to that. I don't know if I'll be able to play the next song thinking about that comment. Dedicates this to two great parents, Dan and Beverly. 
It's about parenting, but not about the kids. It's about wanting time. And he kind of was like, don't really want to say it, but time with your fucking partner. And it's like wanting time to, what did I say? Fuck your partner? So he's getting the hint out there that, okay, this song, this is a song about parents that need some time. So wanting the time to do things that give you a chance to fuck your partner. And he apologized to the kids for his words. Looking forward to future days where the kids are gone and it, and it can just be us again. Romantic. Just being fucking romantic. You know, I didn't know this about future days. It's only been played 16 times. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Along with Sirens, how did this not get pushed into the new era too? And it doesn't need to be played every night, but like last year we got 33 shows and it wasn't played once or twice. With The Last of Us too, like it wasn't like featured yeah. in that video game and like he played it at the video game awards. Mm-hmm. Very surprising. Yeah. But... I think like this part of the set where they're playing more of like, and in this one, it's more emotional stuff, but this kind of starts in 2009, 2010, where they got to find spots for just breathe in the end. And now they have those songs at the helm, but they also have songs like future days and yellow moon that don't necessarily work in the middle of a set. So they need to fit those in somewhere. I actually checked. There is one moment where Future Days was played in the middle of the set, like 13th. So the rest of it is right in this very spot in the encore, though. The band is super sparse on it. It's basically just Ed and Boom. Boom comes in on the intro and plays along, but you can see Jeff is just barely fretting the bass, and like Stone and Mike are just adding little things here and there. It's very low-key, understated performance. It's cool. But of course... You're going to follow that up with Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, played as a request. And this is the second one I'll bring up in this little batch that this song was following me around a whole lot in 2013. I had no problem with that. Heard it at Wrigley, heard it at one of the Brooklyn shows, and that was in the middle of the set too. And that was actually awesome in the middle of the set, come to think of it. And then here, of course. And any time that they play this, and I've been privileged to see it about five or six times at this point the crowd is all having some kind of religious experience the people that understand what this means to the history of this band we've talked about it a whole lot if you want go back to that vegas 2000 episode and there's a whole thing on it we might have spent 15 minutes on it and probably deserved more like 30 so anytime they play it you can just tell that people are going through stuff with the song, that they immediately think of Andy, that they immediately think of Stone and Jeff and their ties to this. And it has, again, it's another one of these on this show just has so much emotional weight to it. And it feels almost like an out-of-body experience, you know? It's a bonding of the two bands that felt for so long that was impossible. And really before 2013, this song was not easy to catch at at shows at all and it's still pretty difficult and i think in 2013 was really the year where they started pressing chloe dancer in with this it's a special moment and you can see there's some shots of the crowd here where the whole entire crowd is just like wide-eyed and moving their heads around and bobbing to it and like they're transfixed by it 
And it goes back to that Rolling Stone article from 1993 where Ed was like, there's one Leather Love Bone song that I'd like to do, but I'm not going to tell you, maybe someday. This version, I mean, you think you had mentioned earlier about Long Road feeling kind of like a eulogy. This one has that feel as well. It's very solemn. They're taking it super seriously. The focus and intensity on it really stands out. And yeah, the, the crowd, you can tell, is, is just taking it all in note by note. back here we're gonna get some big time talking points from me so john throw in your take whenever i need to catch a breath but i'm gonna be talking a lot during this all right ed toast to jeff and stone for writing all these great songs over the years he said i've been thinking about andrew wood and thinking about serious things and the themes of these songs that we're playing but it's friday night and i know that andrew would love what's about to happen last time we played in here in 2010, we played a song. We said it was going to be the only time that we'd ever play that song. And O-T-O-T-O. That term was birthed on that night, but I guess they were using it for years and years and years. And it was the only time we ever played the song. But as soon as we walked into the back room tonight, I said, this, this is where we played that song. And for some reason, I just really needed to play that song again. But before we play that... He's going to play this song. Mike is going to get on the horn for Eruption. And then we are going to go into Ain't Talking About Love. was and it was really the 2010 version is what i ended my wish list on but this song is what connects pearl jam to hartford and what makes me feel like i have a connection to the city as well i can't quite explain it because it doesn't really make sense like how can a band connect you to a city that you're living in when they only played it in once or twice and it doesn't really matter but i think the idea that Hartford was treated like a show, like think about some of the other local places that they go to, and I don't know why this is popping in my head first, but Saskatoon. Every time they've gone to Saskatoon, the two times they've done running back to Saskatoon. Although it's been played like shit, they've done it every time. 
So a lot of these places had these moments where they would go back to kind of a local edge. And since Hartford really never had a music scene, there really wasn't anything that they can take out of Hartford's history and interpret it into a Pearl Jam set. So they created something. Originally in that 2010 set, it was dedicated to the UConn women's basketball team who was on this historic streak of winning games and I think won the national championship that year and essentially flip a coin and they probably won the national championship in a year that you can think about. But this one Van Halen song that caught Ed and Jeff's ear when they were kind of noodling around in soundcheck in 2010 has become this really special, important thing for fans in Connecticut and Hartford and maybe even people that are in New York and Boston can feel this too. But I kind of knew in the back of my head, I'm like, they got to bring it up at least. And I was pretty much like 80 to 20% that they're definitely going to play it. And when they do, it's just like back at the beginning. It's not one of those things like, oh, you repeated history. That was stupid. You should have done something else. No, it was perfect. It was another sign that they're thinking about this place. They're thinking about the people. And sometimes you like to feel special. This was my band in my town telling me I'm getting something special. So my big Van Halen fan, I can't claim to be. You know, I know all the hits. I can have fun with it when I want to have fun with it and I just want to listen to, you know, just crazy rock and roll music. It doesn't happen too often. Sometimes I'll go back and I'll watch Best of Eddie Van Halen clips and they're incredible. But that's not why it's important. It's important because I was able to connect Pearl Jam with the city I was living in. Okay. Counterpoint. This is terrible. And... I've been thinking about this because we just had the clip of Mike being on stage with Guns N' Roses, I guess, went to see Guns N' Roses, came out and played Paradise City. And, I mean, it's like, no. Like, what are you doing? I, I get that everyone's old now and that it doesn't matter. But to me, it still kind of does matter. And maybe that's just me. And people can disagree with me. That's fine. But I don't want Mike going on stage and playing Paradise City with Guns N' Roses. That feels wrong to me. And... I get that this is your song for the city, but I think you're projecting a little bit onto this song when it's really not there. And we can get into the Spokane thing. They they kind of went back on you and cheated on you. A no, little bit. no, 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 no. Spokane doesn't exist. It doesn't uh-huh. exist. Uh-huh. No, they, doesn't they, exist. they cheated on you a little bit. But this is just wrong. It just feels wrong. Like Ed's just reading the lyrics straight up off a thing on the floor. Like he does a little David Lee Roth jump at the end. Like, oh, look at me. Like, this is just not something they should be doing. I hate this. And I don't like saying that about Pearl Jam shows and Pearl Jam songs. But when this popped up, I I had to cringe through this whole thing. And this is not something I enjoyed. You're such a buzzkill. It is what it is, man. Point, counterpoint. You know, you got things from Atlanta shows that you have a lot of pride in, like the Eastie Girls. It doesn't fucking matter, man. They're just having fun. The rest of the crowd is having fun. I don't give a shit that he's reading off a lyric sheet. It was just fun. Let people have fun. It doesn't matter if it's Van Halen or if it's Beethoven. It doesn't fucking matter. I have obviously touched a nerve, and that's fine. Point, counterpoint. But 
I got to be true to what I felt when I was. And I mean, it, and yeah, like I said, I wasn't there. You were there. This is your thing. It's, it's your area. If they had done jump every time in Atlanta, I'd probably feel differently about it. But this doesn't do anything for me. And that's just my reaction to it. And I can totally be wrong. People might be yelling at their phones right now, being like, oh, shut up, you idiot. And that's fine. But this is not something that I enjoyed. And how much of the actual song have I talked about? Like, I don't care about the song as much sure. as I care about the sentiment. Sure. You know, like, like I said, I'm not like this gushing Van Halen fan. Yeah. I, I care you, you, because you just had these put big an effort. You had come back, you had Chloe crown, and then you're going to do this. It just feels, uh, it feels wrong. I think everybody in there would disagree with you. Yeah, it was, awesome. it was special. It okay. was special. All right. Well, you got to follow up with something big after that. And I thought that given a fly was an outstanding follow up. You just keep that train rolling and big time crowd favorite. And the crowd just absolutely nails this bouncing up and down, taking all the big moments, shouting out the fly and everything like that. But, you know, I kind of thought after giving a fly, it's like, all right, let's continue on this. Let's get some more like big time crowd favorites. Right. Well, he does say this before the song starts. He's like, all right, don't go on us now. So in my head, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, okay. I see what you're saying here. I'm ready. Let's go. And then it's got some. Which, if it were literally anything else, I wouldn't have even flinched. I wouldn't have minded. But got some, that's what actually hit a nerve with me. <laughs> Anything that you said, it it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Your opinion's your your opinion. It didn't really touch a nerve. I'm making my counterpoints in that. But this, on this night, did touch a nerve. And it's not just that I don't like the song. It's not just that it was in the encore. I kind of took some time to really think about the reasons why. So, on initial release, I liked the song. I was into it. It was a cool little rock song. Wasn't anything special. Three minutes and whatever. But heard it a couple times on the Backspacer tour. It was fine. Cool. But I think after a while, after hearing it so often, it got into my head. And I'm like, listening to the song, I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? I had no idea what the context was. And I'm like, what sum do they need? And it was just in my head so much that I, I just, anytime I heard the song, I would just get frustrated by it. I'm like, what's the, the sum that you got that you need? I, I kind of grasp that the song is about writing a song and like finding a moment where in the writing where it's, it's like, I think it's like oh, music is the drug. Like you're, you're I, comparing music to drugs a little bit. You got some music in your, but you need it. Like you're addicted to a drug or something. That's what I always yes, But it's, I don't know, it's really faint in that way. Like, I, don't, I didn't feel like the drug part of it, but, like, I guess putting that back-to-back with Fixer, the two songs kind of makes sense because they're about writing songs, listening to songs, but it bothered me a real lot. And I was kind of done with the song. And new album, new tour, really don't want to hear this that often. So Buffalo, they played it in the encore. And I'm like, okay, well... Not my favorite, but, you know, whatever. So, cool. Then they do it again at one of the Brooklyn shows. And I'm like, all right, well, now this is the second time, and okay, you did your thing, but let's not go through this again. 
So I think all of that frustration just seemed to bottle up in that moment. And just in my head that this was a song that kept following me around, kind of like that annoying person that seems to always end up where you are, like just sort of drifting towards you. And it's like, you know him, but you definitely want to try to avoid him. And anytime he has a conversation with you, he's like, hey, you know, uh, I went to this fishing rod store. And it's like just things that you didn't even ask to talk about. It's like, no, I I didn't ask for this. I don't want this. But you got to have to like sit through it. And yeah, I, I think I shouted something like, fuck this. And my friend that was next to me that just kind of looked at me like, what's this is a cool rock and roll song. It's great. That moment, I was just tired of it. Sometimes that happens where songs can just wear you down because of this experience. I guess I've never really found a bounce back with this song. So it just sort of stays near the bottom of the tears for me. I think so you've mentioned too before that you were really getting into stats and chasing songs and it felt like you, I think you said like, do something else there. Why do that there? There are plenty of other choices to pick there besides Got Some. I think part of it too is I think you, you've mentioned like a lot of songs were following you around and you were hoping to get some more diversity in these kind of moments. Yeah, I think so. And I think the whole it being in the encore thing was really, really bothersome because it's like you're hoping for these big time songs with big time crowd reaction. Given a fly was great. And if you're going to tease us with go, that would have been a perfect song there too. But got some just doesn't feel like it belongs in that territory, especially coming from the viewpoint that I just laid out right there. I don't think that, but I also objectively don't think that as well. I think that this is a song that if you want to throw it in the mid set somewhere, fine just surrounded by other songs that are going to kind of hit the fans, but people really like this. I'm not going to object to that. People really like this song. I had a really, really difficult time with the song at the time and it just rubbed me the wrong way on all, all different angles. So that's it. Ran over. All right. Well, now we can really get into what makes this show the serious and emotional show that it is. So this is going to all be about the Newtown tragedy that happened a little less than a year ago to the point where they were talking about this. And I guess a little background on just myself. My, uh, my cousin was in Virginia tech when everything happened. And I remember reading his stories and knowing EMTs you know, kids that were training to be EMTs and and first responders that were on that campus and remembering stories of, like, somebody having to jam their whole entire thumb into a bullet wound in order to keep the blood flowing within the body. Like, intense, gruesome, and just stuff you wouldn't imagine in a million years could ever happen. And then also... My dad was kind of in a school shooting as well. He was in a homeroom class, and a kid walked into the room, argued with the teacher. The teacher said, let's step outside, and then the kid shot the teacher. So my dad has always had this very anti-gun stance. And even from the point when I was a kid, 
He didn't want me playing with stuff like water guns or snap guns or whatever. Like, he just said, no guns. None of that, because in his mind, it was, well, this is training wheels for maybe you think that guns are cool later in life, which I don't. I've really grown to detest, especially with everything in this world and all of what, especially Newtown, which again, it's yeah, local. Just look around. I mean, yeah. It hits me. Yeah. You know, a little bit about Newtown, too, is that I currently, for the next month, but I've been living here for five years in Stratford. It's in Fairfield County. It's closer to New York City side of Connecticut. And there's just remnants all over town because one of the kindergarten or first grade teachers grew up in Stratford. Her name is Vicki Soto, and her memory is just about everywhere in this town. There's a whole playground. I believe they created a playground for every single kid and teacher that was killed at Newtown. I think that there are playgrounds all over Connecticut that are dedicated to a different kid or teacher, which is just amazing. And our town, of course, because Vicky Soto is a local that apparently her thing was she loved flamingos. So there are all these little flamingos around and it's a very pink playground area. I take my son to it, you know, every other week or so. And, you know, there's a street. This is Vicky Soto Memorial Road. There are shirts you can see if you go into the supermarket. You can see Vicky Soto 5K shirts all over the place all the time. Happens every year. And it's keeping her memory alive. It's almost like while you're happy that you get to see that and you get to see people remember her as a hero, it's just also extremely saddening that it ever got to that, that we need that. That something like this so putrid fucking happened at an elementary school and has happened in elementary schools and high schools and middle schools since Uvalde Stoneman almost nonstop. We we'd be here all night rattling them off. Yeah. Yeah. And that you'd think that in 10 years time, uh, we would have said that, okay, this was enough. And a lot of what Ed's going to talk about is saying this, so now let's, let's get into what Ed had to say about this. So I mentioned earlier that Ed was being courted to go to Bristol and see the ESPN studios, but I think that he was doing this instead. He said, this is an intensely profound day. It all has to do with meeting a few people before the show. We've been blessed in this group to travel and share and feel like we get to know so many people in different areas and parts of the country and the world. So when you read about something like what happened last December in Newtown, we feel like we know those people that it happened to. We were thinking about you then, and we haven't stopped thinking about you this whole time till we got here tonight. You can tell Ed is pretty broken up as he's talking about this. I got to meet three incredible fathers of children who were lost. It was such a powerful moment to communicate with somebody we've been thinking about so deeply, and it's necessary to continue a discussion to figure out how to unravel a situation where something like that can happen and make sure that the odds of it happening again are very slim. Well, nobody listened to Ed, unfortunately. Yeah. When something like this happens, obviously we've seen where the community will kind of close up and rally around these families. And for him to 
get to meet those three fathers. You don't get this show if, if that doesn't happen, obviously. But we know how Ed is and how he wears his heart on his sleeve. And you can tell right away that that was something that was really powerful to him. And, you know, especially you had the Alex Joneses of the world say, oh, Sandy Hook was a hoax and all this. And, like, oh. to be there close by and get to meet those families that, you know, you can't even imagine, like, what that meant to this band and, and how that affected them probably to this day. And, yeah, this is one of the great Ed speeches from this year. You know, talking about the gun lobby, the, the safety issues, and, like, just that part was just, like, just be louder. All you have to do is just be louder. It's an incredible speech. And you know as well as I, you have to be very careful when talking about something like this because they want to defame your character or, 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 or take away your right to speak. I mean, while they're protecting the Second Amendment, they also don't think that you have the right to speak as an American, as a taxpayer, as a father, as a parent. We've got a right to speak on this issue when the safety of our, our children is directly affected. And there's... And you will take some hits if, if you put it out there, but that's the thing. I just want to clarify, and we've done some research, and I've talked to some very much smarter people than myself. There's a lot of them. But the myth that the gun lobby is the most powerful lobby in our country is a myth. That's a myth. The money is not the most money. The, the amount of people, it's just in the millions. It's, it's a myth, but it's just because they're louder. They're louder and they're very tenacious. And if you speak up against them, they will jump on you and tear you apart and make it so nobody else wants to say anything or they want them to be fearful that... I mean, we're talking about... I'm gonna stop. <laughs> you know what we're talking about. So... If all the research is saying and all the polls conducted, you know, and... and not just people reacting to what happened, but you have to not just react, you, you have to prevent. You have to go into prevention mode. And, and so what we have to do, if the majority of people agree that there should be more uh, legislation, just to make it a little harder, we're not taking away the right, just, just a safety issue, a safety precautionary, same things that you have to do to get a driver's license or a car. It can't be as easy as buying a pair of shoes. Anyways, all I implore you, and I don't mean to be preaching to the converted, but sometimes you just, the choir has to sing louder. And that's one of these issues. If we are louder, it can, it can happen. We just have to be louder and we have to let the politicians know that they will be reelected if they do what we ask, and we are asking for them to do it now.
because what we don't want is for any of those children's lives to be wasted. Thanks for listening. I face it, a life wasted. I'm never going back again. I have I had no memory of this version of Life Wasted. I think it was just so caught up with everything that he just said that it was just kind of hard to listen to a rock and roll song after that, you know? For sure. Again, like a really kind of heightened emotional performance of Life Wasted. I mean, how could it not be with Cameron just pounding the shit out of the drums and Mike just going off like he does? You know, Life Wasted is not a song that I usually come on here and talk about. I mean, St. Louis obviously was the best one I've ever seen, but this one's right there too. I think I needed to take a little break and just kind of collect my thoughts when Life Wasted came up. But then Porch comes up, it's like, okay, you kind of recalibrate a little bit and you're like, all right, it's Porch. So I'm back in this game. And and you got to think, 12 songs in this encore one, that is hefty. Ooh, yeah. That is big. And granted, you look on it on paper and you're like, oh, well, it's just Chloe Dancer. It's just Eruption. It's just Life Reprise. Uh, yeah. Reprise, right. And it's kind of not because all those songs are multiple minutes here, especially the reprise is, is very long. It's probably like six or seven minutes long. So porch got back to fun. You got the orbs going back and forth and Ed swinging along. He did it in Brooklyn too. That was kind of the showman thing that was happening in 2013, nearly every show. And just like kind of starting the party right here. The rest of the show, while we got our emotional stuff out of the way, the rest of the show is going to be a big time party. It's going to be all about the fans once again after this. And Ed gets the microphone thrown up to him at the oar and does his old hey, and then finds himself yeah, down. Jeff has, Jeff has to come over and hand it to him. Right. And he, then he ends up finding himself down at the rail, as he usually did at the time, and getting up there and, and singing to the crowd right on top of them. And Porch was on fire and played just about every single night in this role in 2013. And yeah, it was just a big spectacle for them. And a little bit of Mike doing a voodoo child tag at the end of that, too, if you have the ears to check that out. Encore 2. It says, it takes a lot of work to get to feeling as good as we feel right now, as good as you're feeling right now. We can always stop, but it seems like the investment that we made here tonight to be in the kind of mood that we're in, I think we should just keep going. We'll sleep tomorrow. We believe in equal rights for humans, so we have to play one for the back. And I was just very happy it was this one and not Last Kiss. We're in small town instead of last kiss so i was happy and at this point being able to see everybody's faces was a welcome sight i think all four of these shows i ended up sitting in the back or like a side or something like that and yeah. no aside for being really really high in brooklyn didn't care the experience is the experience and that's the music so i was having a great time yeah, Ed's having some problems with the monitor during this. You can tell he's, like, pointing over to the board and, like, I think he's pointing at Matt. Like, turn Matt up, I can't hear. But they get it worked out. This sing-along was incredible from what I remember, too. Like, you really get to feel it. And the crowd is, again, going to be the big part of the ending here. It gives a shout-out to our friendly neighborhood Hawaiian and then introduces the crowd to Boom's son, Brock Gaspar. And the two embrace, give each other a old big bear hug to the old man. 
And then he brings up being away from family. This night was Matt's wedding anniversary. So they toast to Matt in April. And then I had totally forgotten about this. This is just like something that just slipped on my mind. He takes a sign out of the front row and it's like nearly impossible to tell what it is. It almost looks like Panama Jack in a way. It's Matt Cameron dressed up as MC Hammer. And on the bottom, it says, can't touch this. Right. MC for MC. Right. Right. It just, what are the weirdest things? He's like, like, give me that. I don't know what this is. And like, I think Jeff has to come over and be like, oh, it's MC Hammer, MC Matt Cameron. He goes, oh, okay. Weird. Weird, but I guess fitting for what this moment is. So then he says, oh, I I got something for you for your anniversary. And he gives it back to to Matt. (laughs) Yeah. And the anniversary is also the same date as his son, Ray Cameron's birthday. 25th uh, birthday today. Happy birthday, Ray. Happy birthday, Ray. The, I, I say this, I guess, with like an endearing tone, but the Trust Fund Baby wasn't his yeah, album called like Trust, Trust Fund, Fund Baby? Something, his band camp thing. Yeah. Yeah. So says, all right, let's sing happy birthday loud for everyone to hear. They do it. And then we get into Crazy Mary, which is going to be a whole lot of fun. The wine bottles passed around. Just another fun crowd moment. And an absolutely on-fire duel between Boom and Mike in this. That once they realize that we ain't going to beat each other, we're just going to keep going and and taking punches as much as we go back and forth. Then they start doing the co-op, and it gets insane, right? Oh, they felt the energy of the crowd that capitalized off of it. Like, they know at this point this is... All every moment from this night, you gotta milk it and savor it. So, yeah, great, crazy Mary. that we finally do get going the show it would have been sad not to get it but they do pay off the <laughs> the tease from Gatso. they do they do you know it would have been worse if they did go where Gotsum was and they did Gotsum here so yeah, yeah. i'm kind of thankful for that in in the very least but it gives a shout out to the crew before go and then we get it and song has a payoff great version the whole band is on fire and just riding this friday night out into the sunset so also interesting here because right after go mike is gonna address the crowd which next to never happens because it next never happens this is so weird that mike actually addressed the crowd the last time that they were harford in 2010 so like mike never talks aside from like you know responding to ed but he's here, talking about a woman named Jennifer who passed away, but did amazing work helping sick patients who couldn't get insurance and the help that they needed. And I couldn't remember who he recognized in 2010, but it was another local Hartford person, too. Kind of the same idea as what Jennifer was a part of. So, yeah, Mike on the mic. 
it's a rare occasion and always for good things. So yeah, I mean, and Ed gives him a really sincere like thumbs up and like a fist bump after. Like yeah, you can tell they've got his back on that. Well, this is the moment right here. You got three more songs left, and again, got to savor it all. So I think this was really the first time where I felt this in a live because again, you got five shows overall this whole entire year. You're at the height. At the time of your Pearl Jam fandom, you just want more and more and more, and you just want to be a part of it as much as you can. And once a live hits, it's almost like a siren in a way telling you, it's like, all right, two-minute warning. It's time to go. So give it all you got and savor it and just celebrate. And it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet because it's telling me that my favorite band and, you know, at that point, my favorite tour that I had been to is all coming to an end and it was a special year maybe i thought about like some of the fun moments and just kind of from that point on it's like where do you go from here and you just kind of hear a live play out and chant along with it and you know raise your fist and all that but again it's like fuck when am i going to get this again if i was smart i should have gone to the west coast but i wasn't smart yeah, you can tell like Ed's feeling the same way. I think he throws in, oh, fucking unbelievable. It was a cool thing, too. All four of them gather together in front of Matt and play for a little while, which is super cool. But we do have to sneak in. There's a little Atlanta reference in here. Somebody has a Hawks Mookie Blaylock jersey, and the crowd is very blatantly trying to turn around and get Ed's attention and be like, look, <laughs> I'm wearing a Mookie Blaylock jersey. Look, like being very blatant about it, which is, which is fine. I don't, really, I don't even think he got his attention, but it's a fun moment, too. You can see on the video. I'm going to find a Hartford reference in the next Atlanta show that we do now. I'm going to just dig one out of obscurity. Somebody wearing a Hartford Weller shirt. And, right, right. You know, like the last row or something like that. Right. Just to say we did it. So Alive was special. And then Fucking Up and Indifference are going to follow. And Fucking Up has played dedication for Neil and Peggy because Bridge School was that weekend. And Ed says, well, they wish that they were there, but they had to be here. We all fucked up, but it worked out. And anytime you get fucking up, and I've only heard it twice, you remember the show for that. Because I've seen Rockin' and I've seen Baba countless times. Can't even put shows to how many times I've seen these songs. And to get fucking up, I think, is another example of saying to this crowd, all right, well, you were with us the whole entire time. Our next crowd in Baltimore is not going to get this. And the last crowd in Philadelphia didn't get this. So you're going to get this. And it's going to be special for you. It's kind of, I don't know if it's going back to the whole ain't talking about love thing. I think that's on a much higher level than that. But getting fucking up whenever I've gotten it and whenever I've seen anybody else getting it, I always think that they did that to make that stand out for your show. Yeah, I mean, looking at Live Footsteps here, they hadn't done it in 45 shows over two years. It had been a while. Yeah, fucking up's great. I mean, it's a chance for Stone to play lead, so I love it. So this is another moment I kind of mentioned before the producer of the Steve Gleason feature that I knew him and I knew the editor. And they were sitting side stage, like in this little kind of box seating area, on Mike's side, like very, very close to the stage. And, you know, obviously the band gave them tickets to go over there. And look, it was easy to find out where they were because Dale does not look like the average Pearl Jam fan. You can spot him in a Pearl Jam crowd pretty easily. 
And, you know, I kind of, you know, a little bit during the show, I kind of locked eyes on them. I was kind of right in their peripheral right there where I can see them and kind of caught them and wanted to see how they were reacting to it. So be able to go to work the next day and be like, oh, wow, I saw you rocking out to this song and all that. And then during fucking up, I see that Eddie specifically goes over and throws them both tambourines. And it's kind of one of those things. Oh, wow. Fuck you. You got a tambourine kind of thing. And also, Hey, you're not a big fan. So fuck you. You got a tambourine thing, but he produced the feature. He deserved a tambourine. But what is so weird about this is that the minute that he gets the tambourine in his hands, he turns into my direction and just starts like pumping his fist, like going, yeah, yeah. Almost as he's like, Hey, Randy, I got a tambourine. You didn't motherfucker. Like, <laughs> and I told him that he's like, Oh no, I was just, I was just super excited. It was really yeah. cool like, to be at the time saying, Oh fuck you. Right. right. So, but yeah, just fun little memories. You, you kind of pick up from that, but all right. Indifference closing this on out. And I think the thing you take away from it is Ed just genuinely thanking this crowd and saying, I mean, this isn't not, this is not normal. I mean, it's... I don't know if I've ever heard him say that on another Pearl Jam show. I kind of mentioned going back to the four songs that followed me around. It was obviously Got Some, Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, Immortality, and then it was Indifference. I saw Indifference close three of these four shows. The only show where it didn't close was, I believe, the second Brooklyn night where they did Ledbetter. And I had been an ardent supporter of Ledbetter must be your closer every single night because that's just befitting of the song. And that was going into this tour. And then once I was getting to hear Indifference a little bit more, I'm like, you know what? Fuck that. No, you need to switch off every night. You need Indifference in your life. You need... Because it's a different kind of sing-along. We're going to talk about that aspect a whole lot when we get into the Evolution episode, that Indifference kind of loses an edge in the set list in the late 90s when Ledbetter's starting to rise and becoming the every single night closer. And you kind of need both for different reasons. You know, Ledbetter obviously has more intangibles in the song, just it being more of a guitar-heavy song, of course. Indifference, though, like has all these moments where the crowd, you got to throw it to them and you got to hear them sing along and and celebrate. And, you know, there's a moment where in some point in the evolution, Indifference does become that and they start recognizing it and playing it more. But I think that I don't think I recognize that in the song until hearing it these three times in the store and saying, well we really have something with this. And now I kind of want to see Indifference way more than Ledbetter, so. This is an outstanding Indifference, and they're definitely going to come back when we do the Evolution episode, because you get Mike using the pendulum bow. The bow, yeah. As well, to add some little texture to the guitar there. This is absolutely great. Yep. And at the end, Ed says, a big difference. Thanks for sending so much love our way. Cool. That's that show. Oh, boy. I'm going to have to pick some moments. You're picking first, and even if you weren't supposed to pick first, I'd let you pick first, because <laughs> I, got, I got some time to think, so yeah. go on at it. Oh, this is tough. My number three, we just talked about it, Indifference. 
Thought it was a great way to end the show. Really unique version. Crowd was right on up until the very end. Very, very good. My number two is Comeback. Thought it was just outstanding for the reasons we talked about. And my number one is Long Road. Oh, I still don't know what my... Okay, here it is. I think that my number three is probably Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns. Because that was following me around. I was feeling real good about it at the time. And just thankful that I was able to witness it so often at that point. My number two is going to be Long Road because I was just so ecstatic. Like anything else that happened that night didn't matter because I got Long Road. Like that's how important that performance was to me. And then my number one is going to be Last Exit with the massive, massive crowd reaction at the end that really makes the show stand out to me. That is the moment from this that I'll always, always remember and always tell people, if you want to know what a Hartford show is all about, check this out. All right. Well, ain't talking about love. Might get docked like five points for your rating, but let's let's hear it. Yeah. This is a great show, and it has so many big emotional moments and so many great performances that we talked about you know we talked about almost every song and they did cut johnny guitar which bumps it up a little bit like i talked about but yeah the eruption talking about love thing has to figure in for me like i did not enjoy that so i am gonna dock some points from that but the crowd more than makes up for it i'm gonna give this one a 10 whoa you need that oh shit this is you need a crowd like this to get the those Hall of Fame shows. And I thought that this was a Hall of Fame crowd. So, yes, as much as I can dock seven points for ain't talking about love, the, the crowd makes up for it. God damn, I was not expecting that, especially after that rant for that. I got the sense that you liked the show, but I was thinking you might have gone nine, nine and a half on this. I'm an easy 10. This <laughs> is one of my favorite shows I've ever been to. It's a, it's a 10 across the board. I guess, like in, you know, when you think about all your shows and it just has intangibles. Every show has their little intangibles that you go back to and you're like, okay, well, in this Chicago show, they brought this person out and Chris Chelios, they announced that his number was going to retire as a Blackhawk and like that's a special moment. And then you think about MSG moments and you're like, oh shit, we saw Sting sing with Pearl Jam and we got to see Ace Freely and. All these things that just kind of happen that are just kind of considered epic moments, if you want to say. And Hartford had all these intangibles, not within like kind of the holy shit parts, but within just the crowd turning this into that kind of show. And I think about it often that I was very fortunate to be in this crowd. I, I think in terms of nostalgia and how favorable I look back on this, I think this is my favorite crowd that I've ever been in. Hmm. But yeah. it's tough because you're, again, the garden, and the garden crowds are so good. That garden crowd last year was unbelievable. It was the only show that I can remember that I actually lost my hearing afterwards. So I give that credit for that. But maybe because it was home that... I felt a little bit more special to me. And yeah, Madison Square Garden, I consider home too. But it's easy to say that New York City is your home. But when you're living in a state where there are Pearl Jam fans, I can shout them out. Tom, Jacob, sorry if I'm forgetting names right here, but there are 
I'm just Connecticut people. Sometimes I, I pass by somebody that lives near me and he has a, a sticker on his back and we'll, uh, we'll get at a red light. We'll talk a little bit and that didn't be like a 20 second conversation, but it's awesome. It's, it's fun and it doesn't happen too often, but you know, there, there are fans in Connecticut and I think it's important to take what you know from where you live and you know, those shows that happen in your backyard and, and really cherish them. You know, you talk about Atlanta a whole lot, and I kind of make fun of you sometimes for talking about Atlanta. Okay, well, stop. They're not going to Atlanta anytime soon, so blah, 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 blah. But I, I get it. I get the whole thing. And I get when, you know, there are people out there, too, that can't travel to shows. So the hometown shows are all that they have. So, yeah. Uh, ten. Ten, 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 ten. And I'm going to throw this to... Indiana Jones right here. Indy, where's it going? That belongs in a museum. Into the museum it goes. The Hall of Fame. Two weeks in a row. Slim's was automatic. Yeah. yeah. But did not expect this to do so. I'm joyed. Overjoyed, actually. And, yeah, especially after that ain't talking about love. I didn't think it was getting there. But <laughs> thanks for making it get there. Still stand by what I said, but like I said, it's offset. Well, next week we're sticking on the 2013 timeline, and we're actually going to Charlottesville, which was two shows after Hartford. So we can kind of get you know where momentum was building upon, and there was a Baltimore show in between that, and people that have kind of talked about the Baltimore show before. You know, there was something weird at the end where Jeff stormed off stage. So obviously kind of bygones, bygones, but I think that that was sort of something to think about going into the Charlottesville show. But once they got into it, it was like, okay, what you got? And the band said everything. So that's what we're going to talk about next week is literally fucking everything. All right. But before we get to talk about everything, let's talk about, hey, how can you help us? You can subscribe to us on the big podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple. And even if you got a smaller one that I'm not mentioning right here, even if you just make sure you subscribe, make sure the episode notifications pop up and keep listening because that's where it all comes from. Hopefully we're telling the stories and there are a lot of intense conversations here. So hopefully we didn't really steer you away from anything, but that's not really what happens on this show normally, if this is your first time listening. So make sure you're subscribed. You can go in Spotify. You can rate us five stars if you'd like. We feel like we always deserve the five stars because this show is incredibly difficult to research for. But also, you can do that on Apple, too, and you can leave a comment. And your comment will go a long way because it's not for us. It's for the people. The people out there that are looking for Pearl Jam content and that are looking to see, oh, well, did these guys cover a show that I love? That I went to. Maybe that show is Hartford 2013 that somebody's going to go into and say, damn, I got to listen to this. And if you guys tell this person that Randy and John do a really superb job of bringing you back to that moment and talking about the show, then they'll attach to that. They'll listen. And if they agree, then the word of mouth is just going to spread. Word of mouth works. Let's just put it that way. Word of mouth works. And we can always, always, always use the help. Even when I talk myself to death about this shit. 
All right, let's close. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already. Miss you always. You got to get got the bleed for it, baby. You get to get to get the bleed for it, baby. This is not normal. You got to bleed for-